simply rely on our own strength, just rely on our own wisdom to navigate these complexities. We truly need God's help. And then we start to read the Bible, and we can enter the Bible with this assumption that everything works out perfectly in the Bible because everybody loves God. And then you start to actually read the Bible, and what you discover is that the people in the Bible have just as many issues as you and I have. People in the Bible and in that era understood the complexities and the struggles of relationships. They also understood the beauty of relationships and of community. And loving God, following Jesus, did not make their relationships perfect, it made them possible. Following Jesus, loving God did not make their community easy, but it made it redemptive. And one of the best examples of this was the passage that was read for us earlier from Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 41. This is one of the most famous relationships in the whole Bible between a guy named Barnabas and a guy named Paul. And this passage, Acts 15, talks about how it fell apart. Now, if you don't have a Bible, you're always free to take the ones in the chairs as a gift to you. We would love for you to take those. Or you can, uh, there's free apps as well. If There's a lot of ways to have access to the Bible. But this is Acts 15, verse 36. It begins this way. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. So you need a little backstory here. This is Barnabas and Paul's backstory. They were important Christian leaders in the early church. This is kind of what happened. So there's a guy named Joseph. Joseph is a priest. He's a Jewish priest. And when Joseph hears about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, Joseph believes that it's the completion of everything he's known. It's the completion of everything he's taught. So he puts his faith in Christ. He becomes a Christian. And then he goes to find some other Christians. And at this time, there's like a few thousand Christians, not like two billion, but there are a few thousand Christians. He goes and finds them, and they are so remark- they find it so remarkable that Joseph is so encouraging And so they start to call Joseph Barnabas, bar meaning son, nabas, encouragement, the son of encouragement, because apparently he was such an encouraging person. So now they call Joseph Barnabas. He's the encourager. This would be important because a few years later, the Christians got news about a guy named Saul. Saul was well known in that time as a persecutor of Christians. Saul had Christians put in jail. Saul had Christians to be killed because of their faith. But the word that reached the early Christians was, Saul met Jesus. Saul encountered Jesus, and Jesus has humbled Saul. Jesus has changed Saul. Saul is a different person. Now, how do you think that news was received by the early Christians? it received what we might call a chilly reception. Because many of them either had been thrown in jail by Saul and his friends, or people, they had relatives who had been, or something like this. So it sort of was a, I'll believe it when I see it. Good for him, if that really happened. 
except Barnabas. Barnabas is the encourager. So Barnabas goes and meets with Saul, who's now called Paul. Barnabas goes and meets with him, and he confirms, yeah, this guy has changed. He really did meet Jesus. Jesus really did humble him, and he's been changed. Barnabas was an accepted leader of the early Christians, and so when he said Paul was okay, everybody else dropped their suspicions. So now Paul is welcomed in by the early Christians. Now, most of the Christians in those early days were Jewish by heritage. They had been raised Jewish, and then they had come to put their faith in Christ as the completion of all that they'd been taught. What the church asked Barnabas and Paul to do was to go and share the good news about Jesus to people who were not Jewish by heritage, in other words, with what the Bible would call Gentiles. That'd be most of us in this room. We're not, many of us, most of us in this room are not Jewish by heritage. So Barnabas and Paul were really the first Christians, uh, first uh, noteworthy uh, written in the Bible about Christians, who started to try to bring the good news of Jesus to people who weren't Jewish by heritage, for which many of us are thankful. And so what they did is they went on the north rim of the Mediterranean Sea, and they would get to a town, and they would preach the good, about the good news of Jesus. They would come in and say, God is not distant from you. God is not distant, but God has come near to us through Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, through His perfect life, through His death, through His resurrection, you are invited into a relationship with God. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you haven't done, through Jesus Christ, you are invited into a relationship with God. And you can find forgiveness and purpose and security and identity and community and life abundant, everlasting life in Jesus Christ. Now, some people laughed at that, some people walked away from that, and some people believed it, and they put their faith in Jesus. And so what Barnabas and Paul would then do is they'd take these Christians, uh, those who'd put their faith in Christ, along with kind of the spiritual explorers who were still trying to figure it out. They hadn't really dismissed it, but they were trying to figure it out. They'd put them together into what was called a church. It's a very novel concept. They would put them together into a church, and they'd say, okay, y'all keep doing what we've been doing. We're going to go to the next town. And they did this over and over and over again. So that gets us to our verse for today. That, that's my explanation for the verse on the screen right there. So Paul says to Barnabas, well, let's go back to those churches and see how they're doing. Verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. I learned how to pronounce that word at the chapel service. You'll be glad to know at 8.15. The reader had asked Google, and so that's how we learned. So Paul wants to go back and visit the churches and the Christians in all these different towns. Barnabas says, that's a great idea. Let me go get Mark so he can come with us. Now, we learn elsewhere in the Bible that Mark is Barnabas's cousin. So it is not unlikely that Mark's parents were texting Barnabas's parents who were texting Barnabas, please find a way to include Mark in your little church planting journey. But Paul does not want to take Mark, 
And Paul says, Barnabas, I don't care if your family reunions are going to be awkward. Family reunions are already awkward. But I'm not taking Mark because traveling around the Mediterranean is dangerous, and I don't have time to take care of your cousin if he deserts us again. And this is true, that Mark had come with Barnabas and Paul on one of their previous church planting journeys, and, and Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia. So taking Mark didn't go so hot the first time, and so Paul is the hard charger. Paul says he's not coming. And Barnabas is the encourager, and Barnabas says he deserves a second chance, Paul. Does that sound familiar at all? Isn't this what you and I deal with over and over and over again? They are arguing about the tension between boundaries and second chances. That Paul wants to put down a boundary, and Barnabas wants to give a second chance. And both of those, if done well, honor God, but the hard thing is knowing when to use which one. So I would define a boundary. Paul wants to set a boundary that Mark cannot come. I would define a boundary as having an appropriate expectation of another person's behavior. A boundary is to have an appropriate expectation of another person's behavior. For example, you need to be sober to be around my kids. That's a very reasonable boundary to set. Or I will help you look for a job, but it's ultimately your responsibility to find that job and to hold down that job. That's a very reasonable boundary to set. I will not make your problem my problem, but I will help you solve your problem. It's a very reasonable boundary to set. If you insist on insulting me, I will keep my distance from you. These are appropriate expectations of other people's uh, behavior. You don't have to say, well, I'm a Christian, so I have to be everybody's doormat. It can be a good and God-honoring thing to have appropriate, emphasis on the word appropriate, appropriate expectations of other people and their behavior. Now, let's be honest. People will not always meet your appropriate expectations of them. And you will not always meet the appropriate expectations of other people. So what do you do when you don't meet other people's appropriate expectations? Or what, what would be done if someone didn't meet your appropriate expectations of them? When should you extend a second chance? Second chances, this is what Barnabas wants to do. Barnabas wants to give a second chance. They require us to understand why it went wrong the first time. I mean, was it an honest mistake? Or was it immaturity that the person has grown out of? Or is it a symptom of a persistent problem that has never been addressed? Were there reasonable mitigating circumstances? This is probably the big question. Is there any reason to think it might go differently this time? Is there good reason to think there will be a different outcome this time around? This is the hard work of second chances. These are the, some of the hard questions we ask. So Paul says, I have the very reasonable expectation that our traveling companions don't desert us. He's not coming. Mark deserted us. He's not coming. 
Barnabas says, Paul, that was a while ago. Mark's more grown up now. He's going to do better this time. He's going to be different this time. He needs a second chance. He's more mature, and he's more mature in his faith. Let's give him a second chance. So this is like an important disagreement, but this is not the end of the world disagreement here. And Paul and Barnabas are good friends, so how is this going to resolve itself? Verse 39, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. One of the most important friendships in the whole Bible, and they parted company over whether or not to take a guy on a trip with them. What? Yeah, like you can over read right over that. What? Over whether they take the guy on the trip with them? But isn't this how it usually goes down? Like, isn't the event itself just really like a little spark? And the powder keg was already there. And so sometimes when you say why the relationship's really struggling, it's kind of a silly reason, except that the silly reason was just the spark and there was already the powder keg there. Because when you and I can disagree on something important, not like the end of the world important, but it's still important, I can overread into your insistence on your position, and you can overread into my insistence on my position, because we both agree this is not the end of the world, so why are you being so stubborn about it? And you'll start to think, well, why are you being so stubborn about it? And before you know it, we're not arguing about whether or not to take Mark on a trip with us. We're arguing about, does Barnabas even care about God's mission at all? Or is Barnabas going to put his family in front of God? And we're not arguing about taking Mark on the trip. We're arguing about how can Paul have any, doesn't he have any compassion in his heart? How can he call himself a Christian and not take Mark on this trip? We sort of ratchet up the, the, the rhetoric and we've stopped talking about whether or not Mark's supposed to go on this trip or not. They had such a sharp disagreement in the midst of the tension of boundaries and second chances. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. And the Bible is silent on whether or not they ever patched it up. It was one of the most important friendships of the New Testament in the early church And we really don't know if they ever sort of resolved this disagreement they had. Paul went on to write much of the New Testament. We read them as books, but they were letters first uh, when they were first written to Christians and to churches. In a little detail of one of those letters, I think the Bible offers one last hint as to what happened. And this comes in a letter called 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy was originally a letter written by Paul to his protege who was named Timothy. Very good. 
And 2 Timothy is written at the end of Paul's life. Paul is coming to the end of his life, and so he's writing to his protege some last thoughts, some last requests. They have actually done studies, and they've analyzed the language used in 2 Timothy, and they found it consistent with the language people use when they are dying. Now, I didn't even know that was a field of study myself until I was reading these articles. I'm just a humble guy who eats at the Taco Bell, right? I don't know all this stuff. But there's apparently a field of study of the language people use in the end of their lives, and 2 Timothy is consistent with the language a person would use at the end of their life. This is what Paul wrote as he's preparing to leave this earth and head into the life everlasting. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, He says, do your best, talking to Timothy, do your best, Timothy, to come to me quickly. For Damas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. So, time out, time out, time out. Paul parted company with Barnabas because there was absolutely no way that Mark should come on the journey with them. And now, as he gets towards the end of his life, Paul wants Mark to be with him in his final days. What happened? Well, there's a number of theories. The most common interpretation, including among the early Christians, read some of those early Christian historians, the most common interpretation is that Paul realized he was wrong. As Paul went on in his life, he started to look back at that situation. I mean, it's interesting, he points out, Mark is helpful to me in my ministry. It's almost like he looked back at that and realized, I I was wrong. Earlier in life, Paul said, I messed up. Mark would have been a huge help. Mark is a huge help. And I want Mark with me here at the end of my life. By the way, this guy Mark, we're having a little debate here about this morning. The second book of the Bible is attributed to this guy named Mark. He grew up. He worked through some of that deserting people in the middle of a trip stuff he had. My point in all this, this is sort of the point, my point in the sermon is this, living in the tension of boundaries and second chances, we must learn to be people who can say, I was wrong. As people who live in the midst of boundaries and second chances, you and I have to learn to say, as Paul learned to say, I was wrong. I thought Mark needed a boundary. He needed a second chance. We might also see situations in our life, well, man, I thought that person needed a second chance. I realize in retrospect they needed a boundary. I was wrong. Those three little words can change the course of a relationship. They can change the course of a life. I was wrong. But loving God, following Jesus, does not make it easy to say those three words, but it does make it possible 
I was wrong. Because what we're starting to talk about here is reconciliation. Saying I was wrong is part of reconciliation. And Christians are people who love reconciliation. Reconciliation is at the heart of what we believe God is doing in the world. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says that all this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I don't know if you're an English major or not, but there seems to be a word being reiterated in that passage. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation. And there are three components to reconciliation. This is kind of like my little wrap-up. There are three components to reconciliation, and they are these. Person A has to want the relationship, person B has to want the relationship, and the source of their disunity must be addressed. Person A has to want the relationship, person B has to want the relationship, and the source of their disunity must be addressed. If you do not address the source of the disunity, you don't have reconciliation. You have dancing around an elephant. So the source of the disunity has to be called out. It has to be called wrong, and it has to be forgiven. So Paul saying, I was wrong, is beginning to address the source of the disunity. Why was there problems in this relationship to begin with? Paul says, my fault. I was wrong. But the passage in 2 Corinthians says, reconciliation doesn't just happen in human relationships. It's also what's happening in our relationship with God. So let's take these three components and think about them in relationship to God. Person A, or we'll say God, has to want the relationship. For you to have a relationship with God, you have to want the relationship. But the final piece is that the source of our disunity must be addressed. How is the source of the God-human disunity addressed? Well, just look at it again. God reconciled us to Himself through Christ. So it is through Christ that the source of our disunity with God is addressed. That in Jesus' unjust crucifixion, God called out and God called wrong human wickedness. In other words, He judged human wickedness. Not judge in the sense of judgmental, but judge in the sense of to call it out and to call it wrong, that when God came to earth as Jesus Christ, humanity did not embrace Jesus, humanity killed Jesus. That there is something deep inside us that we don't really want to talk about in polite company that does not want to be compatible with God. And Jesus was killed without really any cause, except that deep down there's something in the human soul that does not want to be compatible with God. 
And so in the unjust crucifixion of Jesus, God called out and called wrong. He judged human wickedness. Jesus withstood what you and I could never withstand. He withstood the judgment of God, and yet Jesus withstood it willingly. He wasn't forced to do it. He withstood it willingly, and He did it for a purpose. And the purpose is that in His triumphant resurrection, in Jesus' triumphant resurrection, God extended eternal forgiveness to all who follow Christ. God extended eternal forgiveness to all who put their faith in Christ, to all who trust Jesus just enough that we invite Him into the center of our lives. So God reconciled the world to Himself through Jesus Christ because Jesus addresses and deals with the disunity between us and God. So now through Jesus, God wants the relationship and the source of the disunity has been addressed. So what about you? What about me? Do we want to have a relationship with God? Do we desire to be reconciled to God? You can be through Jesus. He withstood judgment so that you can receive mercy. Mercy. God's mercy is available to us through Jesus. God's forgiveness is available to us through Jesus. God-given purpose is available to us through Jesus. Abundant and everlasting life, eternal security, a God-centered identity, these are available to us through Jesus. And all because, this is the headline, reconciliation to God is available to you and to me through Jesus Christ. God is not distant. God has come near. And invites you to be reconciled to Him through Jesus Christ. So here's my little wrap-up question. When you look at your life and at your relationships, where is there a need for a second chance or a boundary or reconciliation? When you look at your life, when you think about your life, your relationships, where is there a need for a second chance or a boundary or reconciliation? Where does this whole little sermon and experience of Barnabas and Paul and Mark intersect with your life? Now, I'd be lying if I said this is going to be easy and fun. So this stuff is not always easy, but it's worth it. It's worth it because we have to rely on God to do these things. And don't miss the headline. You can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That's where the adventure begins, and you begin to live out the change He does in your life. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray.